0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 129. It's titled Simplicity on the Other Side of Complexity. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was a Civil War veteran who served on the United States Supreme Court from 1902 until 1932 when he retired from the court at age 90. He wrote in one of his famous dissenting opinions, this was Abrams versus United States in 1919, that the U.S. Constitution is, quote, an experiment as all life is an experiment. Holmes's father, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., was a poet, physician, and friend and contemporary to Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He was an early supporter and contributor to the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, which he he named. In 1816, Holmes Sr. invented the stereoscope, a device for viewing pictures in 3D. This was a precursor to the popular 20th century Viewmaster toy for viewing a reel of colored slides. I guess it's also a 21st century toy because my daughter remembers playing with one as I do growing up. One of my favorite Holmes quotes is attributed to both Oliver Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. and Jr. I haven't been able to find the source for this quote or to pin down whether it was the father or the son who said it. Here's the quote. I would not give a fig for the simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Now, sometimes the quote substitutes right arm for life, which, you know, right arm would be painful, but it certainly would be a lower cost than, than giving your entire life for finding that simplicity on the other side of complexity. It's ironic that a quote on simplicity has such an uncertain origin as to who spoke it and when and where. Still, I like the quote because it beautifully captures my investment journey. For years, I advised endowments and foundations on their investment portfolios, as you well know. Early in my investment career, most of those portfolios were comprised of active investment managers. We as a research team would spend hour upon hour researching investment firms traveling around the country, often to Europe, in order to identify those select managers who we believe could outperform the market indices an example of a market index is the S&P 500, and this is a, it's a measure of U.S. large company stocks. And the idea is you would, you would gather together maybe a half dozen to 10 active managers, and they would deliver performance above the market through their superior security selection. Now, those investment firms in turn had portfolio managers and analysts who spent hour upon hour researching companies whose stocks or bonds they believe were mispriced and could help the managers outperform the market benchmarks. A great deal of effort went into building these complex portfolios that had multiple managers invested across multiple asset categories with thousands of investment securities constantly being bought and sold. Later on in my career, though, I found the simplicity on the other side of complexity by constructing client portfolios out of passive index funds and ETFs that seek to replicate specific areas of the market rather than outperform them. These portfolios were simpler as they were significantly less trading, much less trading occurring in the underlying securities. Yet the performance was even or often better than my previous portfolios as not only were the fees lower, but I could use those low-cost ETFs to tilt the portfolios into the areas of the market with the most attractive valuations, earning excess returns That way, rather than relying on active managers to make it through smart stock or bond selections, my investment solution reduced complexity as evidenced by lower fees and less time expended while also improving portfolio outcomes for my clients. Since discovering the investing simplicity on the other side of complexity, I have looked for other areas where the same concept applies. One area is nutrition. Michael Pollan in his book, In Defense of Food, provides a simple answer to the complex question of how best to eat healthy. Here's his quote, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. By food, Pollan's means real food with simple ingredients you can recognize and pronounce, food that is found on the perimeter of the grocery store rather than the middle where the highly process, processed food reigns. Poland reduces the complexity of eating by replacing complicated diet and nutrition plans with just seven words. We know we have achieved simplicity on the other side of complexity when our solution reduces cost in terms of time, money, and stress, while resulting in equal or better outcomes. Matthew May writes in his book, In Pursuit of Elegance, that to find the simplicity on the other side of complexity, you must, quote, appreciate, embrace, and then travel beyond complexity. May uses the word elegance to describe far-side simplicity, that is, artfully crafted, emotionally engaging, profoundly intelligent. It should not be confused with near-side simplicity, which stops short of confronting complexity. You have to go through the complexity, He can't stop short of it. And an example of of ignoring complexity or stopping short is building a wall on the Mexican border. The U.S.-Mexican border is 1,989 miles long. Currently, there is a fence or a wall that stretches across 700 miles of it. Recently in the New York Times, they profiled Jose Manuel Talavera. He's a coffee farmer from Honduras. And Talavera had just navigated... Mexico's freight train network to make his way to the U.S. border after crossing into Mexico from Guatemala. And oftentimes they'll ride on top uh, of the boxcars. They're riding on these trains all the way through Mexico. Talavera was making his third attempt to enter the United States illegally. The article states, the first time a Mexican drug cartel kidnapped him and took all his money On the second attempt, he made it to America, only to be captured, detained for two months, and put on a plane back to Honduras. It was his first flight. One month to get there, four hours to get back, Talavera recalled with a smile. At least the ticket was free. Now the border loomed again, bristling with guards and cameras. This time, if caught, he faced six months in detention. He didn't care. I'll go back and try again, he said. Nothing could stop him, he said, not even a new wall. A wall will not stem the flow of immigrants to the United States that are seeking better opportunity. It just compels them to attempt ever riskier ways to enter. The flow of immigrants will stop only when economic opportunity and security is great enough in the migrant's home country to offset the risk and cost of leaving they could get jobs at home and could feel safe at home, then they would stay. But because they see better opportunity elsewhere, they will do anything they can to come to those country. Solving this particular challenge of immigration is a multifaceted, complex endeavor. It doesn't lend itself to a simpler, elegant solution. In fact, as I've looked for examples of simplicity on the other side of complexity, there aren't many examples. Most problems are extremely complex and don't lend themselves to simple solutions. Why else would Oliver Wendell Holmes offer his life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity? Finding it, that simplicity is extremely rare. Now, I have been practicing the way I invest this this simplistic approach on the far side of complexity for well over a decade, and and rarely do I question it. it. It's a process that I teach on the Hub, and it's just how I'm comfortable managing my own assets as well as assets of my former clients. But a couple months ago, I got an email from Trevor, who's a member of the Hub, and he had a question that really caused me to think about the way that I invest. He wrote, During the past week, I finally watched the movie The Big Short that I've been avoiding because I was afraid I would see things I didn't want to see. It turns out I was right. I was disturbed by what I saw. It seemed to me that central plot was about betting on securities losing value, and I could see nothing positive in that whatsoever. What I saw was a movie about people gambling on something happening that would lead to individuals suffering a financial loss and accompanying hardship. There was no investment involved in the way that I understand it. I was left feeling that the financial world that I am a part of by virtue of having an individual retirement account can in some ways be seen as an immoral one. Perhaps naively, I have been thinking of investing as buying shares in a company so that it can prosper and increase its contribution to the GDP or buying bonds so that projects could be undertaken to benefit the public in general. Now I'm confused about the morality of investing. I've heard several of your podcasts that have been more philosophical than technical, so I was wondering if you would tackle the subject of morality in investing. In particular, is there anything that I'm doing in following your aggressive model portfolio on the hub that might come close to me profiting from hardship inflicted on someone else? Now, that's a loaded question. Now, moral, you know, is investing moral? And I Google it is investing moral. And moral means is it right or wrong, good or bad? And it particularly was thinking about it in relation to the opioid prescription addiction. Several episodes ago, I talked about health care, what's driving health insurance premiums and the influence of pharmaceutical companies in rising health care costs. There was a recent article in the Washington Post that talked about opioid prescriptions have skyrocketed from 112 million in 1992 to nearly 249 million in 2015. in Amer- the article says, Americans' dependence on the drug has reached crisis levels. Millions are addicted to or abusing prescription painkillers such as OxyContin, Vicodin, and Percocet. Statistics from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention show that from 1999 to 2014, more than 165,000 people died in the United States from prescription opioid overdoses. One of the, our listeners and a member of the Hub is Karen. She's a pharmacist, and she we were going back and forth on this opioid addiction. And she, said, she says, she writes, it's a hard subject for me because I see it every day. I think it starts when most people have legitimate pain and grows from there. There are people who are physically addicted and people who experience euphoria from these medica- medications. As people take more of it, their tolerance is increased and they need more of the drug to get the same effect. I used to be upset because I feel like the doctor should be helping these patients get off of these medications, especially if they want, if they want to get off of them. However, I now deal with many pain management doctors who make their living on these people coming every month for those prescriptions. I feel that it is someone someone in their best interest to keep them addicted to these medications and the patients certainly want the medication. We deal with fraudulent prescriptions, people lying and going to several different doctors to get these medications. Now pharmacy robberies are being reported more and more. It is upsetting to see where this is going, especially with overdoses. It's hard also for the people who really need the medication. So that we have this this opioid Epidemic. Then there's the investment side of it. That same Washington Post article talked about in colorful charts designed to entice investors. Numerous pharmaceutical makers tout the expansion opportunity that exists in the opioid use disorder population. What they're talking about are side effects of opioid use. And so now we, people are addicted to it, but now they have side effects in terms of like, constipation, an example. And so they're, they're used, and now they need more medicine. That's considered an expansion opportunity by some pharmaceutical makers. Examples. In Divior, a specialty pharmaceutical company listed on the London Stock Exchange, sees, quote, around 2.5 million potential patients, the majority of whom are addicted to prescription painkillers. End quote, as opposed to illicit drugs such as heroin. Another company, New Jersey-based Braeburn Pharmaceuticals, highlights, quote, growth drivers for the market, noting that millions of additional Americans not yet identified are also likely to be dependent on opioid painkillers. Pharmaceutical companies are found within indices and are held by exchange-traded funds. They are in, if you have a diversified portfolio of ETFs, you are participating in that you own some of these pharmaceutical companies that are seeing growth opportunities in opioid addiction. How do we address that from a moral perspective? Is it right or wrong to invest in these type of ETFs? And if not, what do we do? Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. I grew up Catholic. I'm, I'm not, no longer a practicing Catholic, but I went to a Catholic elementary school, and my seventh grade teacher, homeroom teacher, and math teacher was Mr. Gustin. He was, I guess, a fairly religious man, but his, his approach to teaching the Catholic faith was to use catechisms. And catechisms are essentially their doctrinal manuals and their form of questions. And so we would read the question out of a book, and then there would be the answer. And I admit the vast majority of it went over my head. But when, when I sometimes when to go to moral issues, Catholic? Theologians have thought about this for centuries, and so I I googled, is investing moral? And there was a sheet, basically a PDF, I'll link to in the show notes, called Cooperation in Evil, and and so you have the principal agent who is the one doing the act, in this case potentially a pharmaceutical company. A cooperator is one who assists the evildoer in some way. Now, you can be a formal cooperator. In other words, you intend the immoral act to occur. So you want it to happen. You want to profit from it. So you're a formal cooperator. Investing is not like that. The other option is a material cooperator where you don't intend the immoral act to occur, but you're sort of participating by virtue of investing. Now, it's important to realize when you invest, In, let's say, a pharmaceutical company, you're not giving them money. They've already done their initial public offering. They have their money. And so the the money, when the stocks are in exchange, you buy a stock, somebody on the other side is selling it, another holder. and So the money doesn't go, but you're benefiting indirectly because if the company does well, then the stock goes up. So back on the PDF, you have formal cooperators that intend the immoral act to occur. You have material cooperators that do not intend the immoral act to occur. And then of those material cooperators, did you provide the material necessary for the immoral act to occur? In, in, in the case of investing, we're not providing money to the company. So that is not. we're not investing directly in the company. We own their stock that has been sold to us by another investor. So we're not an immediate material cooperator, nor are we immediate in terms of providing the material not necessary. We don't provide any material at all. We do not provide funds to the company, unless you're buying a bond. If We're talking about a stock now. If you're buying bonds to a pharmaceutical company that's performing in a way that we find disagreeable, then you are participating. So, you know, as I look at this, it's complicated. I would say that investing is not an immoral act because we are n- don't intend bad things to happen. We are not necessarily providing the funds. And, and it can get very, very complicated. An example I saw online is when you go to a grocery store. In the grocery store, the profits go, you no know, paycheck might go to an employee that is going and participating in wrongful, immoral acts. Can you be held responsible for that? No, because it was not your intent for that immoral act to occur. There might be products sold in the grocery store that the grocery company profits from that you might find that are, are unacceptable. Tobacco products, for example. And so these can be very, very complicated issues. They're very, very complex. And there's not a simple answer. And it's one I've struggled with. Which is why I've waited several months to answer Trevor's question. But at the end of the day, I'm comfortable owning ETFs in index funds, recognizing that, you know, a portion of those gains is related to, to companies that, that are perhaps are participating in moral acts. Now, another solution is to practice ESG or SRI investing, ethical investing, and I talk about that in episode 77, so you can turn to that. Now, another area of finding simplicity on the other side of complexity what was something that Lapro and I were driving in the car, and she started reading an email to a blog post she got from Dave Ramsey. And, and I like Dave Ramsey, and, and I, I've liked the way that he has resonated with, with many individuals that have been in debt and helped them walk through and get out of debt. And, and I, don't, I don't read him very much. I don't really listen to him at all, but I think he, he has done a great deal of good. So she started, LaParle started reading me this post, and it was retire a millionaire on $35 a week. And the post went on to say, typically we talk about investing in percentages. Dave recommends contributing 15% of your household income into tax advantage retirement accounts to retire comfortably. I would argue you should at a minimum of 15%, including the company match, hopefully more than that. And the article says, the post says, everyone's 15% is different and may be a big or small, depending on your salary. But what if we broke it down into a number that's easy for everyone to relate to? A figure that could easily cover a dinner out a week or a week's worth of daily supersized lattes. Let's see what kind of future $35 a week could afford you if you invest in good growth stock mutual funds. That would be 15% 15% of approximately a $12,000 salary, $3,000 less than what you would bring home in a year if you worked 40 hours a week. And what That was probably a confusing sentence. In fact, it was confusing when Le pro read it to me. Scratch that. Assume I didn't read that last sentence. Essentially, you're investing $35 a week. If you did that and you didn't change the amount, just $35 a week, the article says in 20 years, you could retire... With between one hundred and ten and one hundred fifty thousand in thirty years, three hundred thirty to four hundred ninety thousand, and in forty years, eight hundred ninety to one and a half million. And I said that that's interesting. The pro read the footnote so I know what is the rate of return used to generate those figures. It wasn't there, not at all. (laughs) What? It's not there. So. She emailed it to me, and I looked, and sure enough, there is nothing on that post that says, what did you earn every year on an annualized basis? Nor could I even find a a, a date when the post was written. I I don't know if this was a recent or an old post, but I did the calculation, and the lower range was 9.75%. So the lower range of the hundred and ten thousand, the four hundred and ninety, the eight hundred and ninety thousand, that was based on approximately a nine point seven five percent return. And the upper range was based on a twelve percent return. No one is going to generate those type of returns over the next decade, unless or even the next twenty to thirty years, unless based on where we are currently, with such low dividend yields such low economic growth, and such high valuations, unless valuations go stratospheric. This is not a reasonable number. What I did for you, though, is I put together a spreadsheet. I have two spreadsheets you can get, and and you can get them. If you're a member member of my money for the rest of us, Insider's Guide, the free Insider's Guide, you have already got links to that. If you go to moneyfortherestofus.net and sign up for the insider's guide, you'll automatically sign up and it'll send you these two spreadsheets. One spreadsheet is the millionaire spreadsheet. In other words, it shows the calculations of of the 9.75% and the 12%, and you can put in your own number, your own rate of return, and and, and get the calculation, how much you would have in, in 20, 30, or 40 years. On top of that, way back in the one of the early episodes, I put together a spreadsheet, Am I Saving Enough to Retire? Now, this is a more complex spreadsheet. It has more, it assumes, inflation. It looks at what you currently have invested. It, it looks at what how much you're investing and what your raises will be. You can get that to kind of help figure out what would it take for you to get a million dollars and whether it's $35 a week. It's going to be more than that. I can tell you right now, it's going to be more than that because you're going to use a more reasonable rate of return, such as 6 or 7%, perhaps even 5%, depending on it. And that's one of the things we do on the Money for the Rest of this Hub. I help you set realistic expectations. There's model allocations out there, as well as some model portfolios that that you can do. You can also get that if you're a U.S.-based listener. Just text the word SAVINGS, S-A-V-I-N-G-S, to the number 44222 and you'll get those spreadsheets but there's even a spreadsheet there's com- there can be complexity I've tried to simplify it as much as possible but the reality is some things look simple because they've left out the assumptions they don't have all the data we want to find if we can the simplicity on the other side of complexity but the opportunity to do that is rare so most of the time We just have to deal with the complexity and experiment. Just like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, life, the Constitution is an experiment and life is an experiment. We just try, try different things and we try to manage the complexity as much as we can. And when there's opportunities to simplify, then we simplify. So that's episode 129. Again, you can get show notes at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.net as well as sign up for my Insider's Guide. Get those two spreadsheets. Text the word SAVINGS to the number 44222. Want to get more information on the Money for the Rest of Us hub? You can do that at com. And everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.